You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 10. And once you've found your place there, we will open with a word of prayer before we begin our study. O God of truth, it is our heart's desire to know your word, that we may have wisdom from above, that we may know your word so that we may obey it and know you. It is in your word that you have revealed your will for our lives, the truth about you, about eternity, and about all things. And so we pray that you would grant to us the discernment and the wisdom that we need as we study your word, that we might know the truth and we might know wisdom. We love you and we thank you that you are the God of all truth and all wisdom and that all truth and wisdom reside and come from you. We pray that you would be glorified through our time of study here and may you use this and your truth to conform our hearts to the image of Jesus Christ, that we may reflect him in all his glory and in all his holiness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Uh, Last week in adult Sunday school class, Jess was teaching through the book of Philippians, and he said that in Philippians chapter 2, there is one of the most convicting verses in all of the Bible. It is Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, that says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And indeed, that is one of the most convicting verses in all the Bible because it doesn't matter when you read that or where you read that or how you read that, whether it's at morning or night, whether you're upright or lying down, upside down, um, in the kitchen, in the living room, in the garage, outside, inside, it doesn't matter. You're just going to feel a tinge of conviction as the knife and the truth of Scripture kind of pierces to your heart and you realize we are a complaining people. We with our lips complain about nearly everything. It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too sunny, it's too cloudy, it's too dry, it's too wet. In the last 12 months, we've complained about all of those things, haven't we? Winter is too long, summer's too short, fall is too long, it's not here, oh, it's here, when is it ever going to end? On and on, we com- no matter what happens to us, we complain. We use our mouths to wage war against God's goodness without even thinking about it. We do it almost thoughtlessly, and so that is a convicting verse. Well, the passage before us today in Ecclesiastes 10 is equally convicting because I think all of us, this applies to all of us in one way or another, at one time or another, uh, the way that we use our words and express either wisdom or folly. So Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is our text, and we're going to begin reading at verse 12, and we're going to cover this morning 12 through 15. We're looking at Solomon's description of wisdom as he compares wisdom and folly And we saw last week that he applied wisdom to our work, and we see that wisdom has the advantage of of giving someone success. Today we're seeing that wisdom applies to our words, the words that we speak. Beginning at verse 12, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. And that's the passage dealing with our words, our mouth, our speech. It shouldn't surprise us that Solomon, in contrasting wisdom and folly, might bring up the subject of our speech, our tongue, our words, the way that we use our words, because they provide a great contrast between the wise man and the fool. A fool is very quickly known by his speech. Very quickly known by his speech. In fact, it is the speech of a fool, the way a fool speaks, that will identify him as a fool, possibly before anything else that you notice about them. 
A fool is quickly known by their speech. Now, in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, Solomon is contrasting wisdom and folly, and he is now coming to words, and we're going to look at the words of a wise man and the words of a fool. Scripture has a tremendous amount to say about the tongue, about what we say and how we say it and why we say it and how we use our words. And by way of introduction, I just want to read through some of the passages, uh, mostly here from the New Testament. In fact, yeah, exclusively from the New Testament, dealing with our speech. And we're going to be diving back into some Old Testament passages that deal with that here in a moment. But just sit back and listen to all these passages, many of which will be familiar to you. Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. That is as, most, that, that is as comprehensive as a statement concerning our speech as you could possibly hope to read. Whatever it is that you say, with every word and with every syllable, it ought to glorify God. That's the goal. That's the standard. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 4, the very next chapter, Paul writes, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. It's interesting that in the middle of that passage, dealing with the things that we say in our speech, Paul would have that warning about grieving the Holy Spirit, indicating that it is very easy to grieve the Holy Spirit with what we say. Just a casual word, a casual sentence out of the mouth can be very grievous to God. James chapter 3, verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And also from our scripture reading this morning, James 3, verse 5, So the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. It's a little member. Sets on fire everything around us, or it has the potential to set on fire everything around us. That's vivid imagery given what we're experiencing now with all the fires that are around us, right? That makes James 3 sort of come at us in technicolor. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, the words of Jesus. He said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Likewise, Matthew chapter 15, verses 11, 17 through 20. Verse 11 says, It is not what entered into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. That is what defiles the man. And then the disciples asked him a question about that statement and what precipitated that statement. And Jesus said this, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile a man. To eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. There's a connection the New Testament teaches between the words that we say and the heart that gives fruit or gives, gives vent to the words that we say. 
The words of our mouth are the acid test of our character and our heart. The mouth is like the pressure the pressure vent on a hot water heater. You have a hot water heater in your house, it has a little valve up there, and the pressure gets, builds up too much, it spews out water and it relieves the pressure. That is what the mouth does for the heart. When the heart is under pressure, things come out of it that are in there, and the valve opens up and out spews all kinds of horrible things. That's what the mouth does for us. That's what our tongue does. Vivid imagery. There is a connection between the heart of somebody and what they say. And not just what they say, the words, but the motives behind it and how they say it and what they mean by that. Our words, our tongue, our mouth is a pressure valve of the heart and it is the acid test of our character and of our spiritual state. We reveal so much by what we say. Are you convicted yet? Yeah, okay, good. We're all on the same page then. Uh, the book of Proverbs is full of instructions regarding the tongue and regarding the mouth. It's, it's, it's quite enlightening. Every single chapter of the book of Proverbs has a proverb about our speech. Over 100 times in the book of Proverbs, the words tongue, mouth, lips, are words or speech are used. In fact, other than the subject of wisdom sort of writ large, uh, one commentator said that the tongue, the mouth, our speech, is the primary topic matter of the book of Proverbs. So wisdom liter literature is filled with it. And here we have instruction in it in wisdom literature in the book of Ecclesiastes, indicating that a fool is known by his words. And so now we're going to look at verse 12, and I want you to notice the contrast, because Solomon here is doing what he has been doing through chapter 10, contrasting wisdom with folly, and there is a contrast right there in verse 12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. So there's the contrast between the wise man and what he speaks, and the fool and what he speaks. So we're going to look today at the words of the wise and how they are characterized, and then we're going to look at the words of a fool and how they are characterized. We're going to spend most of our time on the words of a fool, because that's what, exactly what Solomon emphasizes. Apart from the contrast in verse 12, the rest of the passage has to deal with the boastful and destructive words of a foolish man. That is what Solomon emphasizes, so much so that somebody has suggested it's almost as if Solomon is intending to disparage the fool. He is, intended, he is intending to paint a portrait of the fool that is so repulsive to us, so offensive and odious to us, that we would automatically, instinctively want to reject what it means to be and look like and act like and behave like a fool and want to be wise because Solomon is trying to show us that wisdom has an advantage. In all of life's vanity, in all of life's adversity, in all of the unknowns of life, wisdom is the path to walk through a vain and empty world. So that's where we're going. The words of the wise and then the words of the fool. So let's look first at the words of the wise man in verse 12. He says at the beginning of verse 12, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. Now, something that needs to be said in connection this, with this before we kind of get into the meaning of this passage and these words. <clears throat> there is a connection between the heart, and I said this earlier, between the heart and the mouth. And there's a necessary connection in terms of how the speech of a wise man and the speech of a foolish person are, are, are uh, described here. And here's the connection. Just because you say one foolish statement does not a fool make you. Understand that? Is there anybody here who has ever said a foolish statement? Right? Okay, we all raise our hands and we know that. Does that necessarily make you a fool because you said one foolish statement? No, no more so than, than a God-hating atheist fool saying one wise sentence makes him a wise man. So what we are describing here in sort of general terms is the overall character, tone, and tenor of a life. 
You may be a wise individual who's going through life. You're very wise. You're wise in your approach to things. You're obedient to Scripture. And then as a one-off, you say something stupid or foolish or ignorant or something that is even godless in its orientation. And then later on you recognize, you know, that was foolish counsel or that was a foolish way of thinking or a foolish sentence. That does not make you a fool. It just, it just indicates that foolishness is bound up in our hearts from the time that we are a child and we live our lives trying to pursue wisdom. And sometimes we do let a foolish word slip out. So one foolish sentence does not make you a fool. A foolish lifestyle, a foolish speech, where an individual's entire life is characterized by folly that spews out of their mouth, that's what indicates a fool, right? So our hearts may be oriented toward God and inclined to righteousness and holiness and love for the truth, and yet we slip up and say something foolish. If you've done that, then the rest of this passage is not necessarily describing you. If your life is characterized by folly and a godless orientation, the rest of this passage describes you. But not if your life is not characterized by that. So that distinction kind of needed to be made. All right, verse 12 says that the words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. Uh, that word gracious means, uh, it can be translated as elegant charm. It's used to describe something that is favorable or full of grace. It's used to describe, it's the Hebrew word hen. It is used to describe something that is accepted or even something that is acceptable. The word is an adjective in Scripture. It's used to describe ornaments, precious gems or precious jewels, and even the beauty or the elegance of a lovely woman. So the word describes something that is gracious, elegant, attractive, and lovely. But there is a translation issue here with the word that if you're, you're using the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is another very conservative, very good English translation, if you're using the ESV, it translates it slightly differently than you have it read to you now in the NASB, which I'm using. The NASB said, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. The ESV translates it, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. They win him favor. Now, there's two different ways of taking that phrase, that sentence. And here are the two different emphases that could be made from this one passage, this one verse. Solomon could be describing the words themselves, that which characterizes the words. In other words, a man speaks words which are gracious and loving and elegant, kind, good. They have an attractive or beautiful quality to them. And so they end up conveying grace to the hearer. So that if I say something that is graceful and elegant and lovely and nice and kind, generous and encouraging, etc., words of a wise man that are gracious, they convey a grace to you. So that in hearing them, you receive the favor, the grace, the benefit, or the blessing of hearing those words. Or it could be, Solomon could be describing the idea that the words of a wise man win him favor, as the ESV translates it. In other words, the grace or the benefit or the favor come back to the one who speaks those words. So it could be describing the words themselves which can convey grace to the hearer, or it might be describing the result for the wise man who speaks gracious and wise words. In other words, in saying the words of wisdom which are gracious, they bring back favor upon him, adorning the wise man's life, adorning his language, adorning his character, making him look acceptable and elegant and charming and, and, and attractive in, in terms of his character. It could be describing that. Now which way does Solomon intend that? I would suggest to you that he may have here an, a double meaning, a double entendre. It is not uncommon in Hebrew prophecy, Hebrew poetry, or Hebrew wisdom literature to have sentences or words that have double meanings and have the author mean both things. So that the author can be saying two separate things at the same time with the same sentence. And you look at it one way and you say, you know, that's true. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And then you look at it the other way and you say, you know, that's true. There's a lot of wisdom in that. But no matter how you take that, 
It could, it, it's wise, it's true, it's biblical, and it would fit the context. And that seems to me to be what Solomon is doing here. He's, he's saying two different things that are both biblical and they're both true, and both of them fit the context. Let me give you two Proverbs that describe both of these ways that words are used. Both of them from Proverbs chapter 12, beginning of verse, the first from verse 14. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words, and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. You hear that? So a man will be satisfied by his words, the deeds of his hand, what he says and what he does, the wise man, that will return something to him. He will be satisfied by that. So a wise man walks into a situation, he sees something that is difficult to navigate through, and then in bringing wisdom to bear on that situation and saying just the right words in just the right way, it ends up diffusing the situation. It brings benefit and blessing back, not just to those who are there, but also to the wise man. He is satisfied by the fruit of his wisdom in his life and in his circumstances and the things that come back to him because his wisdom is an advantage to him. A second way, Proverbs 12, verse 18, this is only four verses after the other Proverbs statement I just read to you. There's one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So the words can have an effect upon other people. You can say something and it's like somebody jabbing you with a sword. That guy, every time he says something, it's just it's painful, it's abrasive, it's irritating. Like the thrusts of a sword are his words. Or the words of a wise man can bring healing. To whom? To himself? No, to others. And so there, a proverb is describing the effect of our words upon others. Both of these things are true. The words of a wise man can bring him great satisfaction as he receives back that which he says and sees the, the good, peaceable fruit of it. And the words of a wise man can convey great grace to others. It helps both himself and it helps others. And that's the idea here. Now, if there is, a, if there is one consideration that I think would weight us one way or the other as to what Solomon is describing, I think it would be the, the parallelism of, of verse 12. You'll notice that he says, the words from the mouth of the wise man are gracious. The lips of the fool consume him. So is Solomon there in the second half of that parallelism? Notice there's a structure, the lips and the words, or the lips and the mouth, uh, gracious and consume him, wise man and fool. These are contrasts. Solomon in the second half is describing what happens to the fool as a result of what he speaks. It seems natural to expect that in the first half of that parallelism, Solomon would be describing what happens to the wise man as a result of what he speaks. That might weight us in how we would interpret that. The other consideration would be Solomon is in this passage describing not necessarily the benefits of wisdom toward others, but the benefits of wisdom for the person who has the wisdom. Remember, he is commending to us, wisdom has the advantage. And he's not thinking in terms of how other people benefit from the wise man's wisdom. He is thinking in terms of how the individual who has the wisdom benefits from having the wisdom so that we might walk in wisdom. So if I had to take one of those two, I think it's possible Solomon could be describing both of those. But if I had to weigh between one of the two, I would say he may be here describing the effects of wisdom upon the wise man himself. They're gracious. They do win him favor. They, they end up being, wisdom is a blessing to the one who has it because he benefits from the wisdom, not just others, but also himself. Now, there's an application in this, and I, I want you to see it before we leave and consider the words of a fool. Our words do have power. Our words do have power. And when I say that, I'm not talking in the charismatic, word of faith, new apostolic, wing-ding, wing of Christianity type stuff where people believe that in just speaking a word, they can, they can alter the course of a hurricane or put out a fire or make it rain or make the sun come out or whatever. And there are there are wingnuts who believe this stuff, right? That they have the power to create things out of thin air just by what they speak. They say the word and they can bring into being those things that are not. There's a whole segment of Christianity that, that believes that, but that's not what we're talking about. But our words do have a power, not a creative and divine force type power. Our words have the power to do tremendous damage to people. 
to people's reputation, to people's integrity, to people's spirit. We can crush others. We can destroy other people. We can, we can annihilate them. We can ruin people's businesses with a word or with a sentence. There's tremendous power in the spoken word in the sense of how it harms or affects other people. There's also tremendous power to do good because we can encourage and aid and assist and equip and edify and strengthen and build up and, and come alongside of and comfort other people through the things that we say. So our words have the power to do either one of those things. So there's in the, in the, in the mouth of a gracious man, from the mouth of a gracious man or a wise man, flow words that are gracious, that benefit others and benefit themselves. That, that is the way in which our words have tremendous power. And we can use them that way. Now look at the words of a fool. Look at the words of the fool. And this is the rest of the passage. The second half of verse 12 says, while the lips of the fool consume him. Now that is vivid imagery. While the lips of the fool consume him. Now I love the imagery because it, it is almost as if the minute the, the lips of the fool begin to speak, they actually start nibbling away on himself, right? One commentator described it this way. When the fool opens his mouth to say something, the words that come out turn right around and swallow him whole. That's the imagery. And, and Solomon here is using uh, lips, not in, in terms of the speech, in terms of what it is that they say. He's not talking about literal lips. He's talking about the words that are spoken. A fool uses his lips to speak words that end up doing himself tremendous harm. They turn around and consuming him. Now, let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. Are there ways in which people who say foolish things actually end up doing themselves tremendous harm? We can think of probably if we had a little brainstorming session here, we could come up with a couple hundred ways that the things that we say end up destroying ourselves, right? You say something and then you have to suffer the consequences of what it is that you just said. You, res you wish you could reach out and take those words back, delete them off of line, take them off of Twitter, right? You realize the damage that they can do to somebody else in just saying something and you wish you could undo that, but you can't. And so then you have to live with the consequences of saying those words or writing those words or, or, uh, um, communicating them to somebody else, they can do tremendous damage to ourselves. That, that is, the words of a fool end up coming back and swallowing him whole. So here are some illustrations of that. Now some of you are starting to grin, and you need to stop grinning. I'm not going to say anything funny here. I'm not going to say anything lighthearted. This is serious stuff. Here's an illustration of the way that, that our, our words can consume us. Have you ever met somebody, who, no matter who he talks to, in what situation he ends up alienating somebody else? Right? Because of the folly that comes out of his mouth. He just says things, he berates people, he teases people, he just, it's always a word just not quite right for the situation or the setting. And he says something and it's just a comment, it's off the cuff, maybe he didn't even tend to something, but he ends up alienating somebody. And so then you look at the course of this individual's life and, and it's just a, a wake of people filled with people who ought to be his friends and his acquaintances and, and people that, are, that trust him, but he ends up alienating everybody that, he, they, that should love him and should like him. Or, or have you met that individual who is always at war with some family member? Oh, Uncle Joe, he doesn't talk to Uncle Harry anymore. I mean, they did it one time, but there was some falling out between Uncle Joe. So you never have a family event where you invite Uncle Joe and Uncle Harry to the same event because it will just end in strife because they're alienated. And then there's that family member whose alienation changes like the wind, keeping track of the people that he has alienated or is now friends with, and now he's alienated them again. is like trying to keep track of a Hollywood romance, some couple who's divorced and married and remarried and living up and shacking up and have kids with whoever. It's very difficult because one month they're alienated this person, oh, they're back together. We can have them over for Thanksgiving. And then the day before Thanksgiving, no, we can't have them over because now they're alien. They're not talking to each other again, right? Have you ever met this individual? He alienates everybody. He does himself a tremendous harm. Or it could be the man or the woman who speaks to their spouse and their children in such a way as to put a chill on the relationship. 
So much so that that relationship, which should be a source of tremendous warmth and comfort and grace and love and affection in the home, now is chilled to the point where it doesn't provide that at all. The words of a fool consume himself. Now Solomon's not denying that the words of a fool do harm to others. He is saying that the words of the fool in doing harm to others also do harm to themselves. A fool can say something to his employer or to an employee or to a supervisor or a boss or a customer or a client in such a way that he ends up destroying the business relationship that is there and in destroying the relationship that is there, he ends up destroying his himself and doing tremendous harm to himself. The lips of a fool not only consume the lives and the livelihood and the reputation and the character of others and harm them, it also harms the fool. That is why we should avoid folly, not just because of what it does to other people, but because of what it does to the fool who speaks the foolish words. Proverbs 10, verse 8 says, The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. He'll be ruined. Proverbs 18, 7, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Uh, the, the, words of a, the words of a fool are self-destructive, self-annihilating, self-harming, self-cannibalizing. I think of that. The words come out and they just consume himself. And he, and he ought to know better, but he doesn't seem to be able to discern that he's actually destroying himself while he's trying to attack other people. It ruins his reputations, can ruin his marriage, ruin his business, ruin everything about him. Such is the conduct of a fool. And the words that he says are not just... They're not just destroying or self-cannibalizing words. They are evil words as well. Look at verse 13. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. In other words, he begins with foolishness, and it goes downhill from there. There's nothing redeemable about it. There's nothing, there's nothing praiseworthy about what the fool says. He begins by speaking folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Now, this describes the, the moral quality of the words of a fool. Because this is moral language. Uh, Solomon says the beginning of his talking is folly. And we saw a couple weeks ago when we started chapter 10 that folly and foolishness and the fool in Scripture is not somebody with an intellectual deficiency. It's not somebody who's just not as bright as somebody else, somebody who has a, a, a lesser memory than other people or a, a lesser ability to can't comprehend uh, uh, difficult facts. It's not somebody who just has a, a lesser ability mentally. It's not a mental deficiency. It's a moral deficiency. It's a character deficiency. It is the orientation away from God. And so the fool cannot help but be foolish. So he begins by speaking folly, and then the end of it is a wicked madness. So the word folly has a moral connotation to it because it is a godless orientation, a godless direction in his speaking. But then the word madness there is a word that describes an irrational insanity and even a delusion. It is a word that is sometimes used to describe a blindness, and it could have a moral quality to that word. So even the word madness has a moral element to it, and it should remove all doubt that Solomon uses the word wicked, which means evil, bad, or harmful. It is a wicked madness, a wicked insanity. And, and the fool cannot get away from that. He begins speaking, it's folly, it goes downhill from there, and descends into wicked madness. And what would we expect from somebody with a godless orientation? From somebody who every time they open up their mouth, the way that they think, the way that they plan their lives, the way that they evaluate the news, the way that they evaluate their entertainment, the way that they plan their household, spend their money, relate to other people, pursue education, all of their interests, all of their hobbies are all oriented away from God. It is a godless orientation. A heart that is devoid of God and makes no room for God in the planning or the purposing or, or, the, or any direction that they pursue in their life. 
What would you expect from them? Wisdom? Would you expect virtue, righteousness, holiness, truth, purity? Do you expect any of that from a fool? You're a fool if you expect from a fool anything that is praiseworthy or redeemable at all. The fool can do nothing but pursue his wickedness. And that is how Scripture describes the fool. This is disparaging language because Scripture universally disparages the fool. There is nothing redeemable said about the fool in all of Scripture. The best description you can find of a fool, the, the best way you can, the, the most positive thing said about a fool in Scripture is that he is to be pitied. He is to be pitied because he destroys himself and others. And you have to look at him and just shake your head and pity a fool. Not in a Mr. T sense, but you've got to pity the fool. I mean, have that right. You do, you do have pity upon him because he destroys himself and destroys... I didn't plan to say that. that just, I mean, you say something and you realize, okay, that was a blast from the 80s. But you have to pity the fool, and that is the best thing that Scripture says about the fool because of his godless orientation. So he speaks folly, and it results in moral madness. It is a mental insanity to live your life as if God does not exist. That is how Scripture portrays the fool. A godless orientation that results in a way of thinking and living that leaves God out what utter irrational moral wickedness that is. When, when a professor stands in a classroom and teaches students, whether it's math or engineering or science or language arts or whatever it is, and he does so from a godless vantage point as if God does not exist, the, the viewpoint of God and truth of his creation does not enter into that and inform that. When he does that, it's not just another way of looking at things. It's not just the unique perspective of that professor, that college. It's evil madness. It's evil wickedness. Any perspective that leaves God out is not just another way of looking at things. It's morally wicked because it is a godless orientation and it results in a moral insanity. It, insults in, in, it results in wicked behavior, a wicked lifestyle, and a wicked orientation of life. And to promote godlessness is itself a moral evil. As in, innocently as it might be done, to promote a godless worldview, a godless perspective, a godless ideology, or even godless counsel, it's morally wicked. That's how Solomon describes it. It's morally wicked. And not only are the words evil, but look at the quantity of them, beginning in verse 14. Yet the fool multiplies words. I want you to read through the end of, from the end of verse 12. I want to skip verse 13, not because it's not important, but I just want you to catch these two concepts side by side. Verse 12 says, The lips of the fool consume him, yet the fool multiplies words. Do you see that? In spite of the fact that he is doing himself harm by what he says, he just continues to talk. And talk and talk, and talk, and talk, and talk, and he just multiplies his words. A fool never lacks for things to say. Solomon has described this aspect of, of foolishness already in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 3. He said, The dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. A fool, a fool is known by his many words. Proverbs 15, verse 2 says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of the fools spouts folly. It spouts folly. I love that imagery. Like a geyser that just vomits and belches forth wicked madness, so is the mouth of a fool. That's, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. If you could paint that in a picture, I would buy that. The, the, the mouth of a fool, just like a geyser, vomits up wickedness. Think of anybody? Right? I said weeks ago, we are surrounded by fools. And I don't mean that we, uniquely, the 200 of us, are, are the only wise people on the planet. I mean that our entire world is filled with fools. People, who, who, people whose orientation is entirely godless. And he is known by his many words. He multiplies his words. I had a Bible school professor, one whom I was very uh, close with and fond of, and he used to say that, he used to say this, why use two words when one will do? Now, I've never forgotten that. I haven't always obeyed it, 
but I haven't forgotten it. Why use two words when one will do? And he was a man who lived out that motto. And if you were standing in line in the cafeteria with uh, Mr. Peeler, he would stand there quietly with his hands in his pockets, and we didn't have cell phones back then, but hands in his pockets, um, alone with his thoughts or alone in his contemplation, alone with the Lord, and he wouldn't say much until you addressed him. And then he would sit down at the table with a group of students and he would eat virtually in silence. He, he, was a, he was a quiet man. He was known for his few words. But when he spoke, he was like E.F. Hutton. And I date myself with that reference, but the kids don't know who E.F. Hutton was. But when he spoke, people listened, people stopped listening because if Mr. Peeler was going to say something, he had something worth saying. That was, he was a wise man who restrained his lips, Proverbs 10, 19. I think this was his, must have been his life motto. When there were many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Right? Sew them shut. You have nothing to say. Sew them, sew them shut. Matthew Henry said this, What is wanting, is describing here the words of a fool, what is wanting in the weight and strength of his words, he endeavors in vain to make up in the number of them. And they must be repeated, because otherwise there's nothing in them to make them regarded. Matthew Henry also said this, Many who are empty of sense are full of words, and the least solid are the most noisy. Close quote. I love that. Many who are empty of sense are full of words, and the least solid are the most noisy of them. Plato, who was not a believer, but I do think he stumbled upon the truth of this, this passage, uh, Plato once said, A wise man speaks because he has something to say. A fool speaks because he has to say something. There's a big difference between those two, right? I don't know where I heard this one, but there's another little... Uh, proverb for the day. It says some people can speak for hours on any subject. Some people can speak for hours without a subject. That's how you would describe a fool. Speak for hours without a subject. In fact, that is how Solomon, that is what Solomon is describing, I believe, in verses 14 and 15. Because we read verse 14 and 15. No man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to the city. How do those two statements describing the ignorance of the future and the toil or work of a fool, how do they, how do they relate to the words our subject matter here, of the language and speech of a fool. Here is what I think Solomon is saying. In verse 14, no man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him. Solomon throughout Ecclesiastes has lamented our ignorance of the future. It's been vexing to him. It's frustrated him. On more than one occasion, Solomon has expressed this, right? I work and I labor and I store up this, and I don't know who it's going to go to. Uh, I work and I plan and I purpose for this, and yet we don't know what the future holds. He has repeatedly talked about the uncertainty of what lies ahead. Here he is repeating it again, but this, th this time I think it is with unique application to the fool. The fool does not know the future any more than a wise man does. The fool does not know what is going to come in the future any more than any other person alive knows the future because the future cannot be known. No man knows what will happen. And the fool has no inside track on what's going to happen in the future. He has no oracle that he consults. He has no secret stone that reveals to him the future of what is to come. He has no inside track at all, no prophet. He has no advantage whatsoever. He doesn't know what the future holds. No man could tell him what the future holds. But does that slow down the fool? He does what? multiplies words, just continues to talk. This is describing the individual who, like you and I, has no idea what the future holds. And he ought to, like James, sit back and say, you know what, this is what I'm planning, if the Lord should will this. But instead, the fool says, oh, no, no, 
Now, I'll tell you, what the, I will tell you where the hurricane's going to go. I'll tell you what the weather holds for this winter. It's going to be like this, and it's going to be like that, and you should plan to do this. And here's what the economy's going to do. Here's what the market's going to do. Here's what healthcare is going to do. Here's what the new Congress is going to do. And they speak about the future with all of these terms. They are certain about everything that they're going to do. They make their plans, and they can tell you about the deal that they're about to ink and what's going to happen and how this business is going to rocket out of, uh, out, of the ash, out of the atmosphere in terms of its value, and they make plans and purpose, all of that. Do they know what the future holds? No, but that ignorance of a fool that Solomon is describing here does not keep the fool from talking about the future. The fool continues to boast about things that he knows nothing of. He is completely ignorant of the future, just as you and I are, but he speaks with such great confidence as to what is going to happen and with certainty what the future is going to hold. The wise man would say, I will do this and I will do this if it is in the Lord's will. The fool just says, no, trust me. I can tell you what's going to happen. And they boast of things that they know nothing about. In verse 15, Solomon is describing the incompetence of a fool. Look at verse 15. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to the city. Now that word toil, it's possible that Solomon describes the toil of a fool. He is hearkening back to what we looked at last week. What we saw last week in verse 10 and 11 was that uh, the man who sharpens the axe has to work less than the one who doesn't apply wisdom to the task. So it might be that in verse 15, he is hearkening back to that discussion about labor and saying the fool doesn't sharpen the axe, so he has to work much harder, and he is so exhausted by that that he can't even get back into the city. That could be what he is describing there. But here again, I think we have Solomon hinting at a double entendre. The word that is translated toil, and we've seen this elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, where Solomon is describing a work, but he describes work in, in such negative terms the word that is translated toil here is a word that means mischief, misery, trouble, or wickedness. It can also refer to labor. It's the, most, it's the most negative way of describing our manual labor. Misery, mischief, trouble, or wickedness. I think that in the context of describing words and work, Solomon uses a word that can describe both the wickedness of a fool as well as the labor of a fool and what he is intending for us to to pick up from the passage is this. The wickedness, the trouble, the misery, and the mischief of the fool who in speaking consumes himself, making himself miserable, bringing mischief and trouble and wickedness upon himself, the wicked folly that he spouts so wearies him, so tires him, makes him so mentally incompetent that he cannot even get back into the city. This is one of the most disparaging comments on folly that you find anywhere in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a, a rip-snorting comment on foolishness from Solomon. What he is saying, look, getting... Here's the picture. A man goes out of the city to go to work out in the fields or the mines or the, the quarry. And while he is out there, because of his folly, his foolishness, his mischief, his wickedness, he is so mentally dull by his foolishness that he can't even get home. He misses the exit to the city. He can't even find the city gate. City gates were not hard to find. They were clearly marked. They were the biggest portion on the wall. Cities didn't hide their city gates. They wanted them open and available, visible to all passersby so that people would go in there and seek lodging and seek food and do business and, and do commerce inside the city. The city gates were open and available and they were right there. Anybody could see them. But the fool is so stupid that he can't even see the city gates. He can't even make his way back into the city. Why? Because his folly creates for him so much mischief so much wickedness, so much trouble. He is so mentally dulled by his folly 
that he can't even perform the simplest of tasks. The simplest of tasks. Just getting back into a city. Have you ever met somebody, now this is describing the incompetence of a fool. First the ignorance, verse 14, then the incompetence. Have you ever met somebody who boasts about the things that he knows absolutely nothing about? He is completely ignorant of the subject, but he will never say so. He will never say, I've never read anything on that. I've never studied anything on that. I really have only heard a little bit of this. He'll never utter those words, but instead he will tell you everything there is to know about that topic matter, that subject. And he is completely ignorant of that subject matter. I just had an illustration come to my head, and I had to, I had to go through this moral equation of whether or not I wanted to, to give it. And I won't because these messages go out online. So, there is some, have you ever met a man who speaks so profoundly, confidently about something he is completely ignorant of? That's the fool. He is, knows not the future, but he boasts about it, describes it, speaks with confidence concerning all of these things he knows nothing about. Have you ever met the man who speaks confidently about things that he himself cannot do? Right? I do this every Sunday that I'm watching football. You understand that the correct play was not this, it was that, right? And I'm second-guessing people who make more in a year than I will probably make in my lifetime. But I know better than the offensive coordinator, the coach, the defensive coordinator, all the special teams players, right? I have made, I have made the perfect assessment of everything that has taken place on the field. I, I know all of this, right? This, I do this every Sunday. I sit there and spout my folly from my pie hole in all of its wicked madness as if I know everything that's going on, when in fact, I cannot throw a ball, catch a ball, kick a ball, run a ball, even avoid a ball, like any of the people that are on that field at the time. Complete incompetence. But I am, I am perfectly able to perfectly assess and describe everything that's going on in the field. Right? I, I am surrounded by fools, am I not? We all do this. This is, the, this is the mark of a fool. He knows not and he cannot tell you all about it. Everything you need to know about the subject, he has got it covered. He is an expert down to the last detail of that subject and he is completely incompetent and he is completely ignorant that is the fool now before you accuse me of just multiplying words and staying up here longer than I should have let's bring all of this around back to the gospel all of us are born with folly in our hearts that's the reality we say foolish things we say stupid things and, and we could now on the other side of our regeneration and, and our salvation we could look back at that and we could pistol whip ourselves to death over all of the foolish and stupid things that we have said over the course of our whole lives. Words that have destroyed relationships, businesses, friendships, marriages, etc. We could pistol whip ourselves all over all of that stuff. Our salvation changes us from the inside out. And at the moment of our salvation, we begin a process of bringing all of our thinking and all of our acting and all of our words under the sovereignty of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So that now as believers, we want everything that we say and everything that we do to be informed by those truths and to be under that lordship. We're conforming, uh, seeking to conform ourselves while the Spirit of God is doing the work of transforming us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. So the bad news is we are born in foolishness and we have said and done stupid and foolish things. The good news is there is one who was not born in foolishness, not born in sin, who never said or did a stupid thing in his entire life. And guess what? His perfect speech was credited to your account when you believed. That's glorious news. 
A word perfectly spoken in every circumstance. Rebuke where it was necessary. Encouragement where it was necessary. Confrontation where it was necessary. Wisdom and teaching. Perfect speech. From the moment of his birth, his moment of his ability to speak, to the end of his life when he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Never a word improperly spoken. Not a single one. Always perfect. That perfect speech, the Lord Jesus Christ's perfect speech is credited to our account. So that in the, those who are justified in Jesus Christ, in the eyes of the Father, He does not see people who speak foolish and stupid and harmful and hurtful things. He sees people in His Son's righteousness who have always said that which is perfect. So all His righteousness is ours because of the gospel. So what do we do? Do we pistol whip ourselves for the things that we have said? No, we have repented of those things. We have believed upon Jesus Christ. We trust in that imputed righteousness, that perfect speech, that perfect behavior, that perfect life that was credited to our account because of what He has done. And we resolve to seek and pursue wisdom so that we may be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. So that that which is true of us positionally in Christ, we are perfectly holy in our speech, becomes true of us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is our goal. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which has taken away our sins and given us His perfect life credited to our account. And that is the hope of all of us who have been born in folly and foolishness. And we pray that by Your grace, You would conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, making us holy and righteous in all that we say and all that we do. Help us, we pray, to understand the power of our words to do great harm to others and ourselves, as well as the great power of our words to bring glory to you, to do good to others, and also to bring grace and favor into our own lives. We are thankful for your word, and we are thankful for this wisdom. Give us grace now, we pray, to apply it and live it out. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.